I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. Template of Future Quake, anyway. Maybe not of time. Bionic. Oh, got a little foreshadowing going on yeah, there. That was yeah. kind of some really obvious foreshadowing. That is because we have a very interesting Quake-worthy guest this week. Some classic uh, concepts and material for the Future Quake show for our audience. Uh, we have with us Tom Payne, who is the author of the program The Template of Time. And we're going to be talking about the concept of the patterns and structure of God's plan for world history discovered. And I want to tell you, Mr. Payne, I'd like to welcome you for your first visit to the Future Quake Show. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. Well, and I, and I want to tell your listeners that before we went on air, I asked if you'd had a chance to hear our show, and you said yes. And, and I marveled as our, our people You're would expect if on? they still yeah. came on. So <laughs> we have to get a lot of first-timers on this show because... Uh, they sort of run away like they used to run away from the Munsters Mansion, you know, how they run out the door and the gate out there. But uh, we're glad to have you here. Um, <laughs> happened to catch you on uh, Derek Gilbert's show and was fascinated by the topic and found out you were available and uh, thought our Futurian listeners would re- really chew on this kind of material uh, for a couple different reasons, one for your methodology and even some of the historical material that you, you uncover as well. To, to begin our discussions today, could you give us a very brief capsule about who you are, uh, including your current career and spiritual background, for example? Sure. I'm a graduate of Rice University. I spent a year overseas at St. Andrews University in Scotland. I then served in the U.S. Army as an Airborne Ranger Qualified Infantry Officer. And after my service, I went into the business world in both international and domestic sales and marketing positions. I now trade stocks and options and as for my spiritual background, I'm a sinner who is saved by faith in Jesus. And as for theology, I'd say I'm a Calvinist and an, an admirer of the insights of Martin Luther. Okay, hmm. great. So, uh, That's pretty say, concise. Say of, the, <laughs> of the Reformed tradition, then. Would that be appropriate? Okay, I understand. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with me. So you want to go on the record that you're not getting in based on works. Exactly right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Put him down on that, Tom. Okay. we got a non-works guest. Um, I want to jump right into your information. Thank you for the succinct summary there. Um, We're going to be talking about this methodology, this very unique methodology that you've come up with. That's the crux of your book. How was it that you discovered the pattern of events in world history that you disclose in your new book, again, called The Template of Time? And why did you decide to make this extensive effort? I know this was quite a work to even publish this. So so how did you come across it, and, and what motivated you to put it to paper? Well, I came across it by studying an investment essay. I was reading about 70-year time cycles in the stock market, and the thought popped into my head. I don't know why. I wonder if there are 70-year cycles in the Bible, because um, I thought if God is sovereign over time, and, and let's say the stock market's conforming to this, well, then are, is there an example of this in the Bible? So I looked, and I found some evidence that there are possibly some 70-year time cycles, and I just found a whole host of other time patterns. So I started applying them to history, and slowly over a period of years, I began to see a pattern of history unfolding on this template after it was fully developed. And um, as for publishing it, I felt that what I discovered was significant and real, 
and Christ-honoring and deserving to enter into the public debate of ideas. Hmm. And, and, and how long, again, did this take you to be able to come up with this to the point where you're ready to publish it? Well, I'd say that the, the template was pretty much fully developed after maybe five to six years, and the next two to three years were spent doing my best to um, to hone the, the the central argument down to where it was as easily understandable as possible, and, it, and, and that it told a story that that cohered, um, that was that was specific. Because when you talk about history, it's such a broad topic, and I needed to narrow it down as much as I could. Right, and uh, I just assumed you probably read a few books to to you know do all of world history, particularly Western history, and condense it down to a couple hundred pages. So uh, I read hundreds. <laughs> quite, quite quite an endeavor. Uh, how have you put your pattern for pa- your passion for pattern recognition into your vocation and your livelihood? You mentioned these seventy-year patterns. How how much is that a part of what you do to make a living? Well, it's actually a lot in the sense that um, while I was researching these time patterns, I noticed similarities between the structure of time and the stock market's price charts, which are basically the a pattern of the stock price movement over time. And this insight has um has rewarded me quite well. I've just um I that's why I trade stocks and options now. Okay, so you put your money where your mouth is with was, recognizing these. That that's how I mean you, you have to earn a living based upon the accuracy of determining these patterns. Yeah, and I would say that the two are totally different, and there's just some similarity. I mean, the patterns of history are 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 very um, global in nature, whereas these stock patterns are very precise in nature. And so the two aren't completely related, but there are things. It gave me ideas as to how to better interpret these stock price charts, and that's what I. That's what I now do. Mm-hmm. But but within the business of people who who do trading on on the charts in the stock markets, following these cycles is a key component for that part of the business that does that, right? I mean, that was it. K wave is that what's it, what's it called? The K cycle, Kondratiev. I think Kondratiev or something came yeah. up with the that. Con- Seventy. Uh, wasn't it Kondratiev? Something like yeah. that. I could be wrong. But but there's different cycles and things like that that are part of the theory. Of of what people use every day uh, and you put said, big money on whether those cycles keep on. You said K wave. Right. I thought you were talking yeah the radio. About, like, the radio. Station. I knew. I was hoping <laughs> K wave. I was hoping what they you, you would with... gracefully save me from that. So uh, <laughs> and I point that out. Sorry. Uh, but basically, cycles big or small is is how people make it or don't make it in doing that kind of trading, right? Exactly. It's um and in my case, I'm using. Very short duration patterns. Mm-hmm. Okay, but but the the thing is, it can be very very complicated. Uh, you can get extraneous signals. You you have to be able to figure out what parameters are significant or not. So it's an evolving. I don't know if I use the word science, but maybe a statistical science. But is an evolving understanding of no, of trying to pick out what's significant, and what's not significant, and driving a model that repeats. Correct. Yeah, because there's a lot of noise. It's very confusing. And it's infinitely complicated because you've got all of these things that are impacting society that trickle down to business and things. And and I guess what I'm getting at, if somebody really hit the ultimate model that, that found what the real pattern is, then they would be very, very wealthy people. 
because that's a key part of the financial industry is being able to pick up a repeated occurrence. Uh, and if you could do that reliably, um, that would be the big key in making it and not making it in the final financial business. And the reason I bring this up is that um, this is something that has to be important for you in living to be able to understand what a real cycle is and not a real cycle. And I, I've got to think, even though it's very different, these skills were useful for you in doing this process and looking at historical events. Yes, I would say they were. Uh, pl- please begin uh, on your explanation of, the, of this very complex model that you've – I know it's probably not complex for you, maybe for a neophyte like me it is, but um, begin by explaining how the sequential timing and spacing of the three key events in Jesus' life are paralleled later in recorded history in a cyclical fashion. Sure. First, when Jesus was incarnated, what happened? Uh, the Word became flesh, or eternity entered time, because one of God's qualities is his eternal timelessness. And I think that this is a very important concept to understand. I believe that eternity essentially structured time, and Jesus' life structured time. History has been shaped by the three events that frame his life. First was his birth, and that occurred around 6 B.C. I got these dates from biblical scholars, and we can discuss them if you want, but I'll just go over Mm -hmm. the dates first. Next was the launch of his ministry as the Messiah in 26 A.D. with his baptism or anointing by the Holy Spirit. So you have this period of almost many lost years, except for a few comments, a few sentences in the Gospel of Luke when he was at the age of 12. Then the final um, time period is 30 A.D. That's when he was crucified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. So history follows these dates in, in the following way. A person is born, or a historical process is launched on the year associated with his birth. About 32 years later, that person or process is transformed, or it moves in a new direction. Then about four years after that, the new direction achieves its culmination. And if you'd like, I'd like to go into um, one or two examples that help illustrate it to make it clearer for people. Uh, Okay. Hit us. All right. So you have these time cycles that occur again and again and again. The 70-year time cycle and the second appearance becomes a 140-year time cycle, then becomes a 210-year cycle, so on. So let's bring it to modern times. The 28th appearance of the 70-year time cycle brings us to the year 1954, and it does it the following way. 28 times 70 equals 1960. When you, when you extend that from 6 BC, you basically have to always subtract 6 because it's 6 years mm-hmm. on the other side of the timeline. So 1960 minus 6 gets you to 1954. Now, there are a lot of important processes that started around 1954. One of them was um, the, the group that, became, that was the, Europe, the European coal and steel community in 1955. They decided mm-hmm. we're going to go all out for economic integration. So this included Germany and France. So you would expect that this, this new movement in history, a very important one, would then receive a new direction 32 years later, which would be around 1986 or 1960 plus 26 A.D. Mm-hmm. And so it did. In 1986, you had the Single European Act, and that was um, something that put into place, these are the steps that we're going to take to go towards this complete economic integration. About four years later, in this case 1992, you have the European Union being formed. And what you can see from this is that 
although these dates are important and they're very closely adhered to, they're not exact. So 1955 is not 1954. 1992 is not 1990 when it should have around, but it occurs around those times. Now, you give like a tolerance band of what, like plus or minus two or three years, something like that? Yes. Okay. And then I'll give one more example, and this is quick. 1954, 1986, 1990 are the dates that we're thinking about. So in 1953, Crick and Watson discover the double helical structure of DNA, and that launches the modern genetics revolution. So you would expect a new direction sometime around 1986, and that occurred with the Human Genome Initiative in 1986. And that was basically an initiative to design to determine what technology do we need, how much money do we need to get this human genome mapped out. Once they figured it out, four years later, in 1990, the Human Genome Project was launched. So that's, those are examples of how this sequence works. And as you mm-hmm. know from reading the book, there are hundreds of examples of this. Now, now you used a multiple to get up to 1953. What was like 28? Is that? Yes. Why 28? What's the significance? Why would you know to look at 28? Well, you could you would look at all of them actually, but 28 is very important in this sense. It's 490 year time cycle times four because there's seven 70 year cycles and 490. Okay. And 490 is important in the book of Daniel with the 77 is a 490 year time cycle that appears in the Bible. So it's okay. the fourth appearance of that 490 year time pattern, which is very powerful. Well, let's, let's get into that. You, you mentioned uh, these different cycles, like 70 years. Uh, most of our audience are, are pretty Bible savvy as far as recognizing the common, common teaching about you know, 70 years and repetition or 40 or things like that. Tell me what are the different year cycles that you have identified as significant in your book that you mentioned. You mentioned the 70 years. Which other ones are there? What do they represent? Each of them has something significant about them uniquely, uh, according to your theory. And and how do you know for sure that they're significant? What's a way that you, you know that they really represent those particular things? Okay. there. I looked at the um, the... Book of Genesis, and I saw the, you have these people that were living, Methuselah lived to 969 years of age. Did he actually live that long? And I don't say that he did not. I mean, I, as I put in my website, God can make a fish live outside of water for a thousand years if he so chooses. So I don't deny the possibility that he lived 969 years literally, but I think this has symbolic significance because a lot of the ages in that in those Genesis years are clearly symbolic, if not also literal. Enoch lived 365 years. Well, that's one year for every day of the year. Lamech lived 777 years, and that's a play on the important number seven. So you have those years, and they become time cycles in my study. Also, you had a very structured appearance with the patriarchs of of their their ages and how they're based on squared numbers. So you have Abraham is 175 years of age when he passed on, Isaac 180, and you have um, Jacob at 147. Well, all of them are based on squared numbers. Um, and I'll let people go to the website to see that because I, I don't want to go into that minutia. But then I, I know these dates are significant because as I mapped out history and I mapped out these different time cycles, particularly, for example, the 110-year time cycle based on Joshua and Joseph's lifespans and the 180-year time cycle of Isaac, they occur repeatedly at very important moments in history as you extend them throughout history. Okay. Mm -hmm. But now the significance, 
of what you think each of them uniquely represent? Is that mostly just your observation of what you've seen usually happens that associates with them as you identify them in your book? Yeah, well, here's what I tend to find. It's I don't know if, if for example, the 180-year time cycle has a has a different significance than, let's say, the 110-year time cycle. But as these different time cycles appear together and converge, like they did in the year 1974, um, you, you find that it becomes an even more important starting point for historical processes. So that's the one thing I found is that they tend to converge and conjoin, and where they do, it's, um, it, it makes that time period even more significant. Okay. So how, how many in total again, uh, for example, did you mention in your book? I didn't count them. I've got an appendix at the end of the book that has a listing uh-huh. of them, and that's not necessarily a complete listing. It's, it's, it's a listing of the ones that I think are significant. How, how many would you guess, rough estimate, off the top of your head? Forty. Forty. Fifty, something like that. Wow, forty or fifty... Like like seventy would be one, seven seven would be one, eleven. Of well, that. I don't use seven and eleven because okay. when you get too small, it okay. then becomes just too difficult to track anything. Yeah, okay, okay, but uh, um, but these but these kind of numbers, you're saying there's up to say forty of them that you've looked at that have some kind of unique significance on their own. I remember, hundred and eleven was a big one. Hundred eleven, right, yeah. right. Okay, um, okay, uh, just. Pers- Presenting further in, into your uh, your methodology here, um, how does the biblical concept of jubilees impact your model, including the 500-year seasons in your big-picture model? I know it ties in on a small scale and then even on this, this larger scale as well. Yeah, what we have with the jubilee is um, the creation of this pattern, time 500-year time pattern that I call a fractal, and I'll, I'll go into what that means. It's not that complex but essentially history unfolds in 500-year blocks of time. And these 500-year blocks of time are different from, let's say, the 180-year time cycle. These ones are consistently um, either based on the 70- or 100-year time cycle, and and I'll show how that works in the following way. When I was researching the book, I noticed how the Bible had a fractal vision of time. And And fractals are simply irregular shapes, that are the same or similar at all scales of measurement. So if you think of a, a mound of dirt as is is a fractal of a hill, as a fractal of a mountain, these are irregular shapes that are similar at all measurements of scale. When In the realm of time, we see the Bible saying, a day is like a thousand years in the eyes of the Lord. And then you have these other fractal types of measurements. Pentecost, for example, Feast of Weeks, it was seven weeks or seven seven day periods plus one day and Pentecost means 50 or 50th so it was a 50 day period was marked off by Pentecost then you have Jubilee which is a fractal of Pentecost it's seven seven year periods plus one year so what I did was I just said okay times fractal let's increase the scale of Jubilee let's make it instead seven 70 year periods plus 10 years and once I did that and extended it from the um the, the three hubs of time, as I call them, from those years that we just covered, history started falling into place. Now, did you say 70 sevens? Seven, 70 year cycles plus yeah. 10 years. So right. you essentially are multiplying it by a factor of 10. Mm-hmm. Well, what makes me think of the particular 770 or, or two incidents in the Bible, 
uh, in the book of Daniel, it says that uh, the people are set aside for uh, 70 weeks uh, to, to wrap up. Uh, you know, iniquity, you know, to, to anoint the most holy one and things like this. So it's almost a period of time of, of there's a struggle for that 77 and then there's a time of rest at the end of that or like the Jubilee. There's also the concept of, um, Jesus, um, uh, mentioned to the people who said, how, how often should we forgive? You know, or basically strive with those who oppress us, uh, by forgiving them. And he said 70 times 7. Right. So th- there's a repeated effort of, of some kind of struggle that takes place before you get some kind of relaxation or resolution at the end of that period of time. Is that somewhat relevant to this? It, it sounds very similar because what happens is this 500-year time pattern is basically um, it, it launches a, a process that then culminates at the 490 and the 500-year mark. Okay. Now, for what I gathered in your book, is that it, basically the, the, the 10-year... Jubilee at the end of the 490 cycle and the 500 cycle in of itself, that Jubilee is a way to basically recalibrate them together. So they become equal together and they can both have some kind of initiative based upon the 500 year cycle and one on the 490 plus 10, but then they start with yet a new new time going forward. Is that correct? Exactly. So for example, um, 7 times 70 is 490, then you have the plus 10, which gets you to the 500. Well, the next appearance of this Jubilee fractal is 570 years. So you start from 500, add 70 to that, and move ahead. Mm-hmm. Instead of it being 490 years plus 70, which would get you to 560. Right. Uh, and if I seem to recollect right, in some of the key events that happen in those periods, you, you lose use a lot of latitude within that 10-year Jubilee. In other words, anywhere in that 10-year window these critical events can occur in your model. Is that right? Well, yes and no. I mean, for example, um, let's look at, uh, let's go 500, let's go 1,000 years, then add 490 to it and 500 years to it. So you go to 1,490 years and 1,500 years. Okay, 1490 from 6 B.C. gets you to 1484. What happened around then? Well, two of the reformers were born. Luther was born in November of 1483, and Ulrich Zwingli was born in, in um, January of 1484. Then you move ahead to 1516, which would be 32 years later. What happened around then? It was a the, – the Reformation broke out. It was a new direction not only for Martin Luther's life but for history. Four years later after that, what happens? Well, Martin Luther is excommunicated, and so we have this, this sequence of events – that leads to the establishment of the Protestant Church because the leader of the Protestant faith has been removed from the um, from the communion of the Catholic Church. Well, the next one, the the, four, the, five, the 1500 year cycle, rein, augments and reinforces this. So around 1494, this is a a three-year span. You have mm-hmm. 1497, Melanchthon is born. Philip Melanchthon is right. This is Luther's right-hand man. In 1526, he's asked to develop a um, some, some rites, and um, it, it was the start of the Augsburg Confession, but it was just an initial introduction to visitors of, of, their, of their land, what this Protestant faith was all about. So Melanchthon develops that. And then four years later in 1530, he produces the Augsburg Confession. And you now have two separate confessing faiths in Europe. 
both the 490 and the 500-year um, time cycles, they augment and complete each other. They were both they both helped establish the Protestant Church. Okay. Does All that right. make sense? Sure, sure. Now I, I want to make sure I understand if if I did pick up on this, and 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 if I glaze over sometimes, sometimes I'll take something you may say, and again my engineering background kicks in, and I'll be focusing on that, and and sometimes miss the other things even in your text. But um, are are there two different particular things, the 490 and the 500, intend to track, and they just happen to coincide? In, in other words, each of the 70s are they looking at a certain type of event to occur? Whereas the 500 looks at a different, and they just happen to resolve themselves of that sometime and merge together? I think that the best way to look at it is this. The 490-year time pattern and the 500-year time pattern are of the same, cut from the same bolt of cloth. They're both in the culmination phase of this 500-year event. So you have these events that occur prior to that, which lead up to them culminating finally in this um, 490 and 500 year time period. So they're essentially the same because they have the same purpose. They both lead to the culmination of this historical movement. Okay. Well, the the, the 500 years, you go you go further in your description. I, I think you even look at a millennial scale. I believe you called them epics, I believe. Um, yeah. yeah. What, can you explain the whole concept of seasons, how you even take the 500 year cycle and then look at it even bigger? Uh, to, to basically explain the last 2,000 years we've been through since Christ. Sure. Um, essentially, history is divided into 2,000-year epochs. You had the, um, if you were to look at the, the start point of history, according to the Bible's time patterns, it would be around 4,004 B.C., which is what you got from Archbishop Usher. If you would go 2,000 years forward from that date, Around 2000 BC, you would have the time when Abraham was born. He was born around that time. We don't know exactly when. So that ends this prehistoric almost period, and it starts this 2000 year period of, of, of the um, age of Israel. Now, after, when Jesus comes at the 4000, at, you know, 4000 years from 4, from 4004 BC gets you to 4 BC. Well, Jesus was born around 6 BC. So you have the new direction of history, but also the start of another 2,000-year epoch, which I call the age of the church. Now, why isn't it the age of Israel? Well, because, unfortunately, Israel was almost wiped out completely by the fury of Rome. Um, it's a testimony to God's grace that they, they survived it, but they had two tremendous wars, and the one that ended in 135 A.D., it almost wiped them off the face of the earth. So you rarely see much in the way of history from Israel for about a thousand years after that. Mm -hmm. um, so this is this two thousand year age of the church is then divided into five, four five hundred year periods, and since there are four of them, I call them seasons. Okay, all right. So so you you certainly follow that fractal process. You look at it in cycles uh, that can be very small, and then you look on the grand scale as well too. Uh, within these cycles, as you're going through a series of them, let's say seven of, of let, let's say a 70 year, just for example, we'll pick that. As you go from one to the next 70 to the next 70, you furthermore in your methodology say there's critical junctures from the first one to one of the intermediate ones to a final one that key changes in the particular topic you're looking at uh, actually change. Can you explain about that? 
uh, about uh, when these periods repeat in cycles, uh, and sometimes like the third or fourth or seventh. What did you find significant about those repetition cycles in recorded history? Well, one of the things when I when I developed this um, jubilee fractal, as I called it, I didn't really understand how important it was to history until I discovered that it also was like that 36-year time pattern. This 500-year pattern also initiates a important movement in history. It then has a point where that movement is it changes direction or is transformed, and then that new direction is. Um, it comes to a culmination at the end of the 500-year point. Once I got that, it was a huge breakthrough in my understanding of this. But basically, I got that idea that there were that the first 70-year cycle initiates a movement, the fourth 70-year cycle sends it in a new direction, and the seventh 70-year cycle culminates it. I got that from a footnote in the NIV Study Bible. It basically said that um, days one through three in the creation week were primarily concerned with forming the earth. Days four through six were concerned with filling the earth, and day seven culminated the cycle. And then I, it just sort of flashed to me that, okay, so day one, let there be light. That's a new, that's an impulse that starts the whole process. And days one, two, three are forming the earth. And then day four, let there be lights. That's a new impulse that then is concerned with filling the earth. And then you have the um, seventh day of culmination. And once I figured that out, then history really started making sense to me. Okay. Now, um, remind me again, the, the, the day four is usually, or cycle four is usually when it has that redirection? Yeah, so fourth cycle of 70 years, so that would be year 280, or you add 500 years to that, year 780, then you subtract six from either one of them, right. 274, 774, 1274, 1774. Okay. All right. Now, do, does it always stay with that particular fourth cycle for the turnaround, or does sometime you combine those earlier? Maybe I was a little confused in the text. No, Are there times always, when it occurs earlier than that? Well, there there is another um, pattern, which is based on 100 years. So you, you would have the other, the 300-year mark would also do the same thing. It would also be part of that transformative new direction period. So um, 274 would be the Jubilee fractal, and then 294 A.D. would be the Millennial fractal, or 300 years from 6 B.C. So that those two, they sort of intertwine with one another throughout history. Okay, okay. Um, can you give us, and, and I, I, it's, it's very hard for our listeners to fully probably appreciate all this and grasp all of it, uh, but this whole fractal fractal idea of looking at a microcosm of a period, you know, within a lifespan of a person, whether it's a 70-year cycle or, or or another briefer cycle, that that a pattern that occurs within that cycle also occurs on a macro scale with multiples of that cycle uh, as well too. Uh, I think they can get a little bit better picture. And, the, and these kind of concepts of jubilees and things like that certainly have a scriptural basis and undertone. One of the things I find interesting that I thought was the strongest correlation you showed was within a given event. And, and what you cover in your book are, say, for example, a particular movement or a topic or an issue that will go through that cycle itself. Uh, and and each one of these different issues will follow this repeated pattern and and 
we'll, we'll talk later about why. I have some ideas on why there might be some correlation with this. But but I thought it was so interesting that the, the correlation was strongest in the pattern and the lifestyle of Jesus Christ because because he, he almost becomes sort of an archetype of his life of mankind in general and, yeah. and about life in general. You know, being the son of man, he becomes a true representative of the experience that we have collectively. I believe that the template of time is quite simply this. It's it's God's plan that honors the Son. It shows how all history points to Jesus. All history extends from Jesus. He's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Mm-hmm. Oh. And, and uh, you, you go through the evolution of the church, the changes and phases of the church from uh, a time of working out our doctrine and our belief to the merging of the church and state, uh, to a resistance to that, to an alternative path that occurs, uh, yeah. different phases of this, it, it, major political movements in history. All these things are actually, it's soup to nuts that you actually cover in your book. Under It's, it's 200 plus pages. Exactly. It's, um, I did a lot of, of compressing. Oh, one thing I want to tell the listener, if you're getting bogged down in the numbers, go to my website, thetemplateoftime.com. A lot of it's spelled out with graphs and, and charts and stuff, so it, it's easy to follow on the website. Yeah. But I'll give you one with the 500 years that um, I, I still find amazing, and it shows how history sort of moves in this this pattern. You have, in the first 500 years, the church did very little evangelizing outside of the Roman Empire. I mean, they didn't make any inroads into the the northern countries or into Russia or any place like that. But they did a lot of work with respect to developing um, the theology and an understanding of the Word of God. And that, and, and I show how that flows according to these different seventy-year cycles, culminating in the Synod of Orange, which basically said the the vision of Saint Augustine is is what we accept. Okay, next five hundred years, the Dark Ages. Almost no theological development whatsoever, but a lot in the way of the development of um, of the evangelization of the nations. And it, it's amazing how one of the things the book shows, and which I didn't realize at the time, but Europe virtually Christianized all at once at the end of the 1,000-year cycle. Um, it, you know, you had Russia become a Christian nation, Bohemia. You had Poland, you had Hungary, um, Norway, Denmark, all of them, all at once. It was It's remarkable. Okay. Well, um, yeah, I have some comments on that about what we can learn about God uh, from those kind of things. Like you say, when those trigger points happen, and it's almost like a tipping point, and then things happen quickly, I think it shows some insight about about God himself in that. But I want to encourage our listeners to get your book, The Temple of Time, uh, and in Take plenty of time to work through these things and see it and be able to see how these things... It's, it's, it's a kind of book you may have to read a chapter a few times, but it's a very entertaining book. You'll learn a whole lot about the history. And in fact, I want to talk about that for uh, most of the remainder of our discussion because I consider there's two facets to your book. Maybe they're sub-fractals of your, your topic. <laughs> but um, one is the explanation of your methodology and then examples on how it works, examples of how it fits, and the significance of it. But along the way, you have to take our audience through a a very whirlwind tour through recorded history of the last 2,000 years. And I appreciated and enjoyed that in its own right. 
uh, I thought it was a very insightful, succinct summary uh, of of these events. And also, I think that you've taken uh, in some very, very uh, difficult sort of explosive issues throughout the last 2,000 years a very balanced approach, and you're very careful to caveat. Uh, what you say in your opinions, and I think that's that's very responsible. I mean, you have opinions, and you express your opinions on there, and our listeners may or may not agree with different ones on on the real significance of them. But um, but you're careful to say that you know that this is what you understand. In fact, I'll give you an example that I was remiss to mention. You, you gave some earlier dates for the key events in the life of Jesus, and um, people have debated that for a long time whether his birth happened at this certain year or his baptism or different things like this. And you talk about the references that I think are actually listed in the NIV Study Bible uh, for this and the scholars that they used and what were key historical events that had to put it in a certain window. So uh, I found you to be very careful in trying to at least give your sources, whether people debate them or not, uh, you were responsible and just didn't pull them out of the air, uh, you know, on what, what you were doing. But getting on to some of your discussions of history, which I thought gave me a lot of interesting food for thought, particularly about some of the issues going on within the church um, in your discussion. Can you please explain how you use the term Christendom in your book as representing a Constantine era and beyond Christian activity? And I think you described it as a hybrid combining church and state. And, and what your take is on, on what that Christendom is and, and how it impacted the spiritual health of the body of Christ. I don't think that we can understand Christian history very effectively if we don't understand the concept of Christendom. It's essentially this. Uh, Christendom occurred when Constantine adopted the Christian faith and essentially co-opted the, the Christian church. He... Um, Instead of, you know, when this happened, the early Christians must have thought, oh, we've won the lottery. This is the greatest thing that could be. You know, Constantine has, has adopted the Christian faith. But they didn't realize that it was a devil's bargain at best. Because once the church and state are yoked together, it's an unequal yoking, which the Bible warns against. It's like yoking an ox with a lamb. Wherever the ox goes, the lamb goes, because the ox is so much stronger. So the church became as free as the state allowed it to be. Worse still, as, as often happens in a marriage, the church started to resemble its spouse, the state. Mm-hmm. It became the holder of lands, the papal states. Its bishops controlled armies. Rather than look more and more like a church, it started to look more and more like a state. And the persecution that they thought would end through this union of church and state didn't end at all. It just it was transformed by Constantine. Instead of Instead of persecuting Christians for being Christians, they persecuted heretics. It was Constantine who called for the Council of Nicaea, which I don't think was an evil or bad thing. I think that a lot of good came from these councils. It helped us to really chew our wet, chew on church doctrine and, and sort of figure it out and map it out. But it was Constantine who called that. It wasn't the church who called it. And so what he was wanting was a uniform doctrine because he believed that Mm-hmm. If you have doctrine that's, con- you know, if you have doctrinal opinions that are contrary, they can arouse passions, and these passions can lead to um, an upsetting of the order of the state. And that so, and that belies the fact that religion uh, was being used as a tool of the state, because the state's object of of unity and stability was supreme, and religion's goal then was to basically deliver on the desire of the state. Pretty much so. So what you have then is. Christians are now persecuted for being heretics, and it happened 
very shortly after Constantine um, came into power in the West, he started persecuting the Donatists and basically confiscating their property and um, exiling them. And you could be put to death for these sorts of offenses of heresy. And this persecution of heresy grew and grew more intense throughout the years. I'll give you one example, though, of how the... Um, how this persecution from the now Christian emperors occurred and how it, it maps out on the template of time in an amazing way. You had a group called the Monophysites. They just believed that, you know, that there was no, um, Jesus was basically a one, it wasn't, wasn't man and God, it was just one. You couldn't have two natures in one person. So they disagreed with that whole idea from Chalcedon. So, Justinian started persecuting them around 520 A.D., and finally the persecution after 10 years grew so intense that they left the communion of the church, started their own hierarchy in 530 A.D., and now you had two confessing faiths in in Europe or in, Christ, in Christianity, one that adhered to Chalcedon, the other was Monophysite. Well, then you look 1,000 years later, it happens exactly the same way. You have Martin Luther excommunicated in 1520, not 520, and the persecution ratchets up around 1521 after the Diet of Worms, and then in 1530 you have the Augsburg Confession and a separate confessing faith once again was mm -hmm. formed as a result of persecution. Well, let me ask you this, just bringing this up to today on this topic, since we're getting into some real societal issues on this. Um, right now, there's a major movement afoot within our society here in America. We've got major television hosts uh, spearheading this effort, um, uh, maybe of some slightly different religious faiths, but similar political views, uh, bringing with some major Christian figures and they're talking about things like taking America back, uh, that we're a Christian nation, making it a Christian nation again. Uh, and uh, in fact, there's even a, a movement called Dominionism that a lot of even our, some of the ones that they expect to be 2012 presidential candidates are signing on and having these people anoint them, uh, apostles anoint them in this group. Uh, who, who basically mean to take over not only spiritual authority as apostles over people in America, but political authority as well, too. And, and the general consensus, and this is spread throughout the conservative community in, in America, is that if we can get these Christians in positions of power, state power, then our troubles will be over. Because these people will think like us, they'll be in power, we won't have to worry about persecution from Muslims particularly, and we will get these people uh, in line, and then we can rest and relax because they're there. What what you've shown through history tells me that that could be just the beginning of our woes. That if we get people who at least nominally share, you know, what what they what they believe is common as being a quote Christian, um, the the persecution will not stop. It will only pick up even more so. The model for Christians in politics, and Christians need to be in politics, but I don't agree yeah. with this whole dominion idea. Uh -huh. um, but the model for Christians in politics should be something like William Wilberforce who worked tirelessly, probably destroyed his health, trying to overturn slavery in the British Isles. And it wasn't, he didn't want to necessarily merge church and state. He wanted the state to act more like Christ. 
and that was his that was his goal. He just thought this is morally wrong and reprehensible. We've got to change this. And I think that if you come at it from that angle, it's a great thing. But if you come at it from the angle of state power with Christianity, that can be an absolute disaster, and it has been for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think you know where I'm coming from with this. This is something that's a major discourse in Christian media right now, is that if we can take all the biblical principles, including some of our basic moral issues, the issues that we have between us and God individually that are very serious matters to God, but use the state as the arbiter uh, to be able to make people moral, they they believe that is the best, and they believe that we're pleasing God. And in fact, even it says in the last days that when people persecute you, they will believe that they are pleasing God. Um, so so this is going, but history tells us that this has happened before, and it didn't turn out as well as Christians thought it was going to. Right. I, I think that the separation of church and state is one of the most important contributions that the United States has made to political theory and government. It's um, it, they, And they did it because they looked at the horrors that had occurred because of the union of church and state. Well, and I know this is not the main purpose of your book. I mean, your main thing is to explain the methodology and to give people enough history to be able to understand and, and appreciate and put it in context. But through the history you provide, a lot of this material... The average Christian is certainly not talked about. It's not talked about in other Christian media, and they don't just have any other means by which to only go through it. Mm-hmm. But but the quote Christian era, when Christians were largely in control of the reins of the uh, the, the main power centers in society, whether it's the government or or, uh, or other centers, the society did not stop being a bloody. <laughs> Uh, violence-filled area. In fact, it just got much worse. When you when you see these particular battles, millions of people died, and even in something like the Thirty Years' War, right? I mean, it was basically oh, a religious war between people who said they were Christians, and something like eight million people lost their lives in that. That's correct. It was um, the if you look at the Christian emperors that followed the pagan emperors. The pagan emperors were dilettantes compared to the Christian emperors, particularly when you look at the um, the religious wars that were fought in France. They were just so terribly blood-soaked and, and, and vicious. And the ones in the Netherlands where you'd have a town of 34,000 reduced to 800 people or something like that, um, it was incredibly violent. And then the Thirty Years' War was even worse than that, and it... Uh, it, it, it eight million people perish. So well, we're it, being told now there's people of another religious faith are the are the main threat that we should have, and all of our energy should be brought in in creating a Christian country and society to stop their threat. But history seems to say that people who also profess Christ probably have claimed more lives. And I think didn't you even mention this in your book that Christian rulers have killed more Christians in history than than non-Christian rulers ever have. Oh, absolutely. The Anabaptists, for example, let's just look at the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, the Habsburg, who, um, who, who basically was persecuting Luther and the Lutherans and all that. He made the decision in 1529, again, that important 1500-year mark after 30 AD, he made the decision to um, basically set loose the hounds on the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were a religious sect, and Anabaptist means rebaptizer. What they believed was that um, if you baptize a child, it's really not valid because mm-hmm. this person hasn't come to a saving faith in Christ. So they need to be rebaptized. And for this innovation and other things, they were slaughtered by the by the thousands, and more were killed 
uh, more Anabaptists were killed, they reckon, than all of the Christians who died under all the pagan emperors. So, and that's just one instance. It and, doesn't and this, include the religious wars. And that was a, something that actually united mainland Protestants and Catholics together in their extermination of the Anabaptists. Unfortunately, yes. What I try to point out is this isn't a book that's anti-Catholic. It's not. I'm, right. I, I don't have anything against my Catholic brothers and sisters so long as they hold up the Lord as, as Lord. Mm-hmm. The, but the Protestants were involved in the persecution of Anabaptists, and the first Anabaptist martyr was at the hands of, of the Protestants in Switzerland. Hmm. Fascinating. Um Leading on from that, um, getting on to when we when we directed our our wrath not on each other but again toward these external religious threats, um, please explain how the church uh, recruited, for lack of a better term, jihadist against the Muslims in the Crusades, and how the Pope actually promised an eternal bliss for Christian martyrs in the battles by offering remission of sins for those who died fighting, uh, as well as this whole concept of chivalry that developed as a justification for being pious and, and Christ-honoring while going on a mission to kill non-Christians. Sure, I'd be glad to, although it's, a, it's another sad indication of what happens when Christendom is in charge, when the, the Church gives sanction to things like the Crusades, which it, it makes no sense from the standpoint of, of, of the way Jesus saw things. He, he wanted to send people out to make them disciples, not to kill them, and that's what happened with the Crusades, it was to kill the infidel. Um, the Crusades began right on the timeline. It's a very important movement in history, of course, if you look at it, 1,000 years plus 70 is 1070, and then you subtract the six years, you get to 1064. Well, in 1064 A.D., you had the Siege of Barbastro. It was an international expedition that was sanctioned by the Pope, much like the more famous Crusades that followed, and it was, but it was directed at the infidel in Spain. And these people were also promised the remission of sins, but all they did was pillage and burn, and it was just a a disgusting use of, of, of soldiery under a Christian banner. Okay, so you have the start of this sort of crusade um, movement in history. 32 years later, you would expect it to move in a new direction. Well, 32 years from 1064, you get to 1096. And what happened? In 1095, the actual crusades were launched, and it culminated four years later, in 1099, with the um, capture of Jerusalem. And what you have with the Crusades is the creation of a Christian soldier. What you have on the um, 100-year timeline, which I'm not going to go into, but you have the creation of the Knights Templar, military monks. And monasticism in the first thousand years was a great benefit to the church. It did more good than harm. But then it starts becoming hopelessly corrupt in the next thousand years. For example, think of Monks before were dedicated to preserving scripture, preserving books of culture like Caesar's Gallic Wars. Um, they were evangelists. They did most of the evangelizing that occurred. Now they are being, they, they marry monasticism with being a soldier so that instead of studying how to save someone's soul, they study how to kill someone's soul or kill someone. And here's what they were told. On the Making of a New Knight, one of the books that helped publicize this Knights Templar order and help recruit a bunch of them, it was proposed that killing an infidel was not homicide. That's the killing of a man. 
killing an infidel is malicide. It's the killing of evil. And when you when you take away a human face, when you just reduce them to a cockroach level, then you have the possibility for all kinds of atrocity. And it's almost mass murder almost becomes the logical next step. Now, now, did I did I say this correctly that uh, the Pope actually granted remission of sins? I guess so people could circumvent purgatory if they were willing to kill Muslims and they died in combat. That's correct. Now, explain this to me. How is that that much different than than when when we read in Christian media about how the Muslims send the guys out that they'll get their seventy virgins if they go sacrifice themselves to kill us? The yeah, more, do, do we really have a moral high ground then? Well, no. If, for, if you compare Christendom to anything, you don't have a moral high ground because Christendom's indefensible, and the Crusades are a direct outgrowth of Christendom. I mean, they, these are not the teachings of Jesus that are being promoted in actions. These are the these are the actions of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and when the Crusades later morphed into the Inquisition, this fury against the infidel was turned inward and became fury against the heretic. And then we see the things like, for example, the Anabaptists being slaughtered wholesale at the end of the 500-year period. Mm-hmm. And the Anabaptists would be basically the, the patriarchs of a large number of evangelical movements, You know, whether they, it's the Baptist or, or, or a whole host of other different ones really found their origins in the Anabaptists. Yeah, the Anabaptists had some brilliant ideas, and one of the most important ones was the separation of church and state. They believed in that early on. They saw the they saw the um, the capacity for harming the church that this was that this created, and they they knew that they needed to be rid of it. Well, one of the threats of that idea that I would think other people in the church would have is that it really is a threat to power, because if you find that you can use the church as a means to gain power. Due to cozying up with the state, uh, if people start spreading the separation of church and state, that can really impact your ability to retain power. And, and I personally believe that that's still going on today. That struggle is still going on in the church today on on how much we want to be sort of pseudo in charge. And 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 we would agree with you here that we don't believe in an abdicationist position that Christians should go you know hide up in a monastery and and ignore the challenges and you know in our civil discourse and our even elected office and things like this. We feel like there are there are important things that Christians can be an example in society in actually creating a more just society, one that looks out for those who are who are innocent, uh, make sure they're protected, and that justice prevails in society. But at the same time, we're we're finding people using their power in their spiritual realms to then try to get political power, and and there's been so much realignment since the last political election that it seems like they're trying on new horses to sort of get back in the forefront right now. That's why I found your your discussion this was, way to put that. Was, was so immediately relevant, uh, was that we've been, the church has been down this path before. And the, the sad thing is we don't learn history. And it makes me wonder, too, I'm not an expert on Islam, but I wonder if, in fact, Islam, I, I have known a number of individuals uh, through, you know, working at the university and different things like this that peacefully practice their faith. And it is a different faith than Christianity. There's no question about that. Um, but never once did they threaten to kill me or that they wanted to destroy me or anybody else that I ever heard. Um, but we know there's certainly an element in that. And so sometimes I wonder, 
You know, we, we, we want to separate true Christianity from what you call Christendom. That's a good term for that. And if the same thing doesn't happen even, for example, in Islam, where you, you basically have this kind of movement, and it might help us to understand what's going on in militant Islam if we look at our example in Christendom uh, to be able to understand what are the real root causes. Are, there, are they trying to do a similar kind of thing? Obviously, those people want to get rid of the separation of church and state, too. Oh, they have a theocracy. It is, it's church and state are one. Um, but there was a time when a more cosmopolitan version of Islam was practiced during the, um, you know, right after Muhammad uh, established Islam. I mean, the the early years of of Islam, and up until probably the 1600s, 1700s, the Islamic countries were treated the Christians who lived there more tolerantly than, let's say, the Byzantine Empire treated mm-hmm. their own Christians. Um, some of the early Christians were happier living in an Islamic country, for example, the Monophysites or some of the others, than they were happy with living in um, Byzantium. So they, it's an amazing thing. They were they were very tolerant back then, and probably um, there's a possibility for that sort of toleration to come back. But right now, these times are we're coming to the conclusion of historical processes mm-hmm. 2,000 years in the making. Well, and extremists on all fronts are coming to the forefront. Yes, uh, indeed. That's, that's the scary thing, and that's why you have violent conflicts and things like this that serves no one's interest. Um, the, the Muslims that I've known basically wanted to raise their families, wanted their kids to have a better life than they had, and that is not furthered by war or by attacks or things like this. Um, and, 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 you know, the, like you said, they peacefully coexisted in areas for, for lengthy periods of time in different parts of the world. Uh, same thing could be said true of Judaism. And, in fact, I think we can handle this coexistence with Judaism, for some reason, as Christians a lot better, even though, you know, they have an even lower regard of, of Jesus, per se. But we, we understand. We can have our spiritual differences but then coexist physically. But but we're still wrestling with that uh, you know, with folks with with Islam, and we see, I, I think it's a mirror of some of the, the 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 circumstances you point out in your book. Islam is going through another cycle of this now, and that we're we're pushing back in something that almost looks like pre-crusade. In fact, I think our president uh, a few years ago used the term crusade and how we were dealing with these things. And of course, we've got circumstances now where. We've got companies painting Bible verses on the gun sites that they're using in Iraq. That was a story out not long ago. And, and, and our, our, our Christian media has gotten so coarse where they glorify the warrior. If you listen to a lot of the Christian media shows, most of their discussion is something about the troops or our war or this or that or whatever. Uh, and it sounds almost like what the, this whole chivalrous idea you talk about it with the Crusades, where we've, we've taken spiritual missions that we've had and we've militarized them where we make them coincident. Yeah, I would not disagree. An interesting thing, though, the template um, suggests that the Islamic world does not need to worry so much about the United States as it does about a um, resurgent, centralized, and militarized Europe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, well, I think I think everyone would have to, to, to worry more about that. And I, and, and I ag- agree with that. I think... Some of this is a little bit of a head fake, and if you listen to Future Quake more, you would find some of the darker paths we've gone in terms of this terrorism issue, and who are who are the people pulling the strings behind the people to get caught? Uh, who are the scapegoats that get caught with the things? And and a lot of the movements, whether it's communism, whether it's the Islamic Jihad, other kind of things, actually can find their roots back in the West. 
and certain activities that happen in the West that have triggered these kind of events. So um, the, the, the kind of European families and others that will actually come to the forefront in the last days, as you suggest in the template of time, uh, you can even track history now and find them pulling the strings of these other kind of things that, that really seem like a, a Hegelian dialectic where they're setting up an artificial battle between constructs, you know, a thesis and antithesis, so they can synthesize world history into something that suits their needs. And many times we in the Christian community have such a simplistic view of things that we don't understand it. And part of it, we don't understand history, uh, which, which your book really points out very well. Uh, talking a little bit further ahead, um, you talk about the Enlightenment uh, quite a bit. Uh, and, of course, you know, many of our founding fathers bought in fully to the Enlightenment. And uh, certainly that even reflects in the architecture in Washington, D.C. and things like this. Briefly explain how the Enlightenment period and the, the typical thinker in the Enlightenment era, what their threat was to Christianity uh, and, and how they fought the faith. What was their strategy to counteract Christianity? Well, the... The way that they did it was brilliant, because these were brilliant people. You had people like Voltaire and Diderot, who were some of the leading intellectuals of their day. And what they did was they said, okay, initially, we're not going to criticize Christianity. What we're going to do is we're going to extol the virtues of Greece and Rome and the science of Newton. And then gradually, they started referring to Christianity as superstition after having exalted science. And then they started to attack Christianity for the monstrous crusades, for the Inquisition, for the religious wars. Now, essentially, they said Christendom equals Christianity. And once this equation was made, the battle for the faith was lost because the crimes of Christendom were indefensible. Mm -hmm. You're you're on ground that you can't defend. So it was a brilliant campaign that then, and it preceded an important um, event. You know, we talk about a 280-year mark as being something that um, launches a, um, a new movement in history. There's also that 300-year mark, which in this 500-year season would be 1,800 years from 6 B.C. So you, in around 1794, you had one of those critical movements that will be achieving its culmination in this current seventh cycle, and that was this. In 1793, the French Revolution went into its reign of terror. And part of the reign of terror, and what many people don't realize, was this thorough dechristianization, right. which forced priests to marry, which um, chased them out of their you know, clerical um, business. And essentially, after the dechristianization process was finished, you had just a few priests left, I think, in an area around the Jura Mountains out in the hinterland, and there weren't any services being practiced by Catholics for some time thereafter because of this reign of this reign of terror and dechristianization. Well, that will become more thorough in this seventh cycle. I'm sad to say, because or at least that's a suggestion of the template. And one of the things that this book does is, as you go through the history of the last two thousand years. You develop this sense for the rhythm of history, and you see how, okay, so this new direction actually did become, reach fulfillment in this, this, this time of culmination. That the, um, the, the, the seeds of Marsilius of Padua around 1324, it did result in the ideas of Luther and others in the Reformation. 
So you come to see when you come to the 1794 and the 1774 time period, you look at those seeds and you can see, okay, I could see how that is now coming to culmination now, as in the case of America. I mean, 1774 is the is a year of new directions, and we started our fight for independence in 1775 and declared independence in 1776. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it also suggests, too, like you say, is the resiliency of ideas, either good ones or bad ones. Uh, once they're out on the stage, they may be buried for a while, but when that cycle comes around, they're going to be rehashed. Or, or, or like the, uh, the preacher would say in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Exactly. Uh, and, and that's what I think your template most closely represents is the message that uh, Ecclesiastes says that there's a time for planting and sowing and, and, and all these other kind of things, uh, that it's nothing new. I thought that uh, was birds. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, he got that from the birds. Yeah, yeah. that was he. He was a big listener of them. He enjoyed that. Um, uh, w- one of the areas in, when you start talking about in the modern day, and uh, I know you tread very lightly in some of these things, and you, you you try to qualify some of your positions in this, but yet still trying to use the template to put some context on more recent events. And I think in some ways that's harder to, because you have less of a track record of legacy. Uh, of, of what they are, but I, I appreciate your attempt to try to do that. Now, you, you spoke highly of groups that are typically thought of very highly within uh, Christian community, like Focus on the Family and Family Research Council, as being key examples of the Great Awakening underway in our era uh, via parachurch organizations, where not just under denomination, but there are other organizations that form that have common commitments. First, it was the missionary societies that got together that targeted countries and, and outreach to them. And it's evolved, uh, particularly in our era of media, into different things, whether it's you know focusing again on family issues or things like this. And they have certainly accomplished much for the kingdom. Um, now, we, we talk about some of these ministries, some of our more controversial things that we do on our show. And I thought it was interesting in light of some things that we've uncovered from, from earlier points in your book, that, that even groups that, that tend to be above reproach, like Focus on the Family or Family Research Council, others, have interesting people we find in our research supporting them. And, and in one case in point, one of the most prominent funders uh, and, and key um, behind-the-closed-doors decision-makers, uh, according to several, is Eric Prince, uh, who was the founder of Blackwater. Uh, he and his uh, family were quite well to do, and we're very big into a number of these Christian evangelical ministries. Some There are some reports that show he's actually a board member of Focus on the Family. I'm not 100% sure of that, but he is one of the major funders of Focus on the Family and has preferred access and influence uh, in, in it and Family Research Council and others. And certainly, he and his family helped found the uh, the uh, Council on National Policy, which all these evangelical groups go to, they they call it their Council on Foreign Relations kind of thing. You know, he, here is a guy who really typifies the worst of the the chivalry Christian jihadist types. Uh, where you know, we're now in federal court. You know, data is coming out that he's actually um, had child prostitution rings for his workers. They've wantonly killed uh, civilians, Iraqi civilians, and things. This this information has come out in large numbers, and we have supporting data of some associations like this. Um, is that, in fact, I think his term he used uh, was was well publicized. He he wanted to kill ragheads for Christ. I think was the term he lay, used. Lay out Joe Haji for Jesus. Yeah, that was yeah. that was what came out in court in his discussion. 
um, could in fact, even though there's been many, many good things have been done through these ministries, could these associations and the rise of these kind of associations be sort of a throwback to the old days of Christendom emerging? Well, certainly the philosophy of that, that's represented by um, statements like "kill ragheads for Christ" is 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 part of that whole mentality. Because when you start looking at a Muslim person and thinking of them not as a person but as a raghead, they've lost their human face. Now they're like a cockroach. You can do anything to them because they're no longer human in your eyes. So that's a very very uh, disturbing characterization. But I don't know how deeply that sort of thing affects um, focus on the family, and I, I can't even comment on it. I will say this. When I used focus on the family, I knew that they were they generate controversy, mm-hmm. but I think that um, I looked at it as you had in the, the around the, the, the fourth cycle of New Directions, you had this great, the second great awakening, and all these parachurch organizations were formed, and so I looked to what is occurring now in modern times. What are the largest parachurch organizations? And certainly focus on the families, one of them. And I would, I'd say that most of their work is, to my knowledge, is on supporting the, um, supporting the family. Mm-hmm. I used to listen yeah. to Dr. Dobson's radio program and found it very entertaining and also, um, at different points, um, illuminating. Sure. But if, if they have a relationship with such an individual, they may want to rethink who they've got uh, working, who they're working with. Well, as we understand it, there was a lot of tension behind closed doors, and and I don't know if Dr. Dobson himself was as supportive of that rising group. And of course, they've split now, you know, and he has his own ministry. Uh, this is something that we try to keep an eye on, not from some air of superiority on our end, but we actually have seen data come out that suggests that some of this rise of this. Uh, this crusade kind of militarization uh, thing has crept up in our own ranks in evangelical circles and in particularly between the, the, the major leaders that count on certain money and funding to keep a very large ministry going where there's, they've been seduced somewhat into these kind of things. And it gets very, very complicated and it becomes difficult uh, when these people are fellow believers in what you say or don't say. But it seems like to me a message that I could read from your book, one of the collateral ones, is that... Um, whether it's enlightenment uh, believers, and which were still today, in fact, I would say they dominate Europe today. That's why it's so anti-Christian. Or in the Islamic world or other places who consider themselves enemies of, of the Christian teaching, when they point to Christendom as, as what our problem is, and particularly if Christendom is coming back again and becoming back in vogue as we're putting on our warrior robes again to go attack the world, or, or even just running the state, that it would behoove us that are followers of Christ in America to to renounce and, and to make sure we go on record to stay away from that Christendom and, and anything that smacks of it for the sake of the gospel of Christ. I would agree 100% because, I mean, you know, it, it's the way that we are going to make um, Jesus shine before people is to express you know share with people his beauty he's he's a beautiful individual he's not a a horrible hateful individual and and once they see the beauty of christ that to me is 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 um a very powerful evangelistic message and 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 jesus did show us an example of how to deal with people who are different than us even had different faiths or came from different cultures he he generally complimented them he noted them on, on things that were virtuous about them, and then he challenged them 
with the good news that he provided. He also ministered to them. He met their physical needs and other needs. At the same time, he invited them to join in the work. And that's a message that you don't hear that much of in the large-scale Christian media, is that when we think of people of different religions and cultures as an opportunity uh, to actually invite them to join in to, to the good news that we've been fortunate and privy to discover. You know, this this really isn't a flashpoint here in Nashville because this is where we had the uh, Quran burnings not long ago and oh, there's yeah. an Islamic center where they've been defacing it and doing some other kind of things to it. And and we're of the position that doing those kind of things are probably not going to help lead those people to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And that there, there's a lot of work to keep this, quote, invasion of Muslims into our country that, that may change or transform our country. And I think we think that is basically an expression uh, uh, of saying that we have a very weak faith and that we don't have the power of Jesus Christ behind us. And in fact, it seems like... From, from from an evangelistic standpoint, uh, this is a tremendous opportunity. If we have people of a faith that... Nobody's going to cut your head off to go evangelize right. Muslims here. They normally live in countries where we're not allowed to evangelize, go to them. If they come here on our turf, a tremendous opportunity to to be able to share the good news with them that we would not have otherwise is available. But it's completely how you look at it, either negatively or positively, is totally the attitude of what you think Christ has called you to do. Is it to kill the evildoers, or is it to convert them over to Christ? Yeah, I tell you, the good news is, is that we have um, a lot of evangelists growing up in China who are targeting the Muslim countries. Mm-hmm. They call it the Back to Jerusalem movement. Yeah. They know that the the word went out. It basically moved westward, and now it's come full circle over into the Far East, and it's they want to take it all the way back to Jerusalem and start evangelizing the Muslim countries. One of the things that's fascinating about the Temple of Time, though, is, you know, I talked about those two 500-year periods. Well, they were they're replicated in this this millennium. So the first 500 years of this millennium were also spent with doctrine, just like the first 500 right. years of the previous millennium. You know, and it culminated in the Reformation, which was an explosion of a new concept of of what the Christian message meant. Then the next 500 years, the one we're now in, has focused on evangelism. Mm-hmm. And you can see that I think Africa had like 10 million Christians in 1900, and in 1990 it had something like 300 million Christians. We're seeing this harvest of nations just as we saw at the end of the previous millennium. Mm-hmm. And what I think, will, what it suggests to me is that China, India, and other nations out there in the Far East will become will come to Christ. Their leaders will be mm-hmm. Christians and that the people will start adopting the Christian faith um wholesale. That's that's one of the suggestions of time. Well you you mentioned about coming back to Jerusalem and, and, and evangelists being trained. I ran into a gentleman here in Nashville, I was here for a conference that was he was Swedish. And he, he ran a ministry where he actually brought in Chinese Christians who had been persecuted for their faith and we're training them to become missionaries in Islamic countries. And what he said was, he says, look, they've already taken tremendous persecution. They are not going to be afraid of Sharia law or of the tremendous pain and suffering that if these people are brought in. He says, Getting if they're holding them the down... He, yeah. What happens at home? It's called it's called being a Christian. <laughs> yeah. You know, getting kicked in the head is what is being yeah. the bearing the marks of Christ. And he says he says they're trained that if they're, you know, stuck down on a tra- chair, jump out the window. 
jump grass through the window, and then go back into town and start uh, ministering again, which is exactly what Paul did after they stoned him. He went right back into the same yeah. town and did it. So, so they're not walking in a spirit of fear, in a spirit of what happens if somebody starts persecuting me for doing this. Their serious business and their only main focus is on winning disciples for Jesus Christ and, and whatever they experience come up with. So, you know, I, I've come across some personal examples of what you're talking about this movement. Now, now on that topic, I understand this cycle. If I understand that the, the Jesus life cycle extended to today, w- would that continue if the Lord tarries uh, this evangelical cycle up to about 2030 and then swing back to some kind of theological struggle at that point? Well, the um, time cycles, you know, it would take another 70 years before the next thing is launched. Okay. And, of course, your interest, you're, you're absolutely right in pointing out that the Lord could tarry. He's, he's, he's a Lord. He'll, he, they will just, it's decided in heaven when this is going to happen, and no right. man knows the hour. And I certainly don't try to, I mean, I think that if you try to figure out the date of the Lord's coming, it's um, it's blasphemous because mm-hmm. Jesus said no man knows the hour, and it's a, it's as if you're saying, okay, Lord, look, you're just the Son of God, but I happen to know when you're coming, and right. that's just ridiculous. But the there, I do believe that he will be coming soon. This is my personal belief. I don't know the hour, but mm-hmm. I do believe he's coming soon because of the the way the millennia line out. You have this fourth millennia of new directions being Jesus Christ is born, and then you have this age of the church with the harvest of nations in Europe. I believe it will end with a harvest of nations in Asia and Africa, and but it's the end of the sixth millennium is coming up, mm-hmm. and what comes next is the seventh millennium, which is to be the millennium of of peace, of the millennium of rest, and before that happens you will have the rapture of the church. And one of the things that um, I'd want to point out is the way this, these things unfold in the 147 cycle. Mm-hmm. At the end of the first thousand years, you have Enoch, around 987, actually. So it's not exactly mm-hmm. a thousand years. Right. But he's, he's raptured into the heavens, and it initiates man's return into the presence of God, is the way I interpret it. Then you have the fourth millennium, or the, the fourth millennial cycle, Jesus and God comes to earth, and he opens the door and, and makes the offer to all who want to come into his presence. So you have that taking place. But then the seventh cycle is when he returns, and at the beginning of the seventh cycle, to establish the kingdom of God. But before, and oh, I'm sorry, and one other thing, and in the fourth cycle, Jesus is also raptured up into hev- the heavens, or he ascends into the heavens. So you have it with Enoch, you have it with Jesus. And then just prior to his return, we were told he will rapture his entire church into the heavens. And I think that we're on the, we're, we're approaching the doorstep of those times, but I would, um, if it doesn't happen in 2030 or 2046 or some other years, I'm not at all surprised right. because he, he's left the, the end points of the millennia are kind of obscure, like um, with Enoch in the 987 years. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just not the, a perfect science. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, do you know anybody else who's pointed out that corollary of the three resurrections before, or three uh, raptures before? No, I'm not. I'm yeah, sure I wasn't. Done, I, I wasn't uh, aware of that either, and I thought that was a novel thing in your book. It was a little treat for the end of the book that I really appreciated, and was going to ask you about that actually, and I'm glad you brought that up. Um, 
there was there was something else related to, to that I wanted to ask you about, um, but we'll we'll skip ahead here on this. Um, you know, one of the things we try to do here on Future Quake in a book like yours, which is very hard to cover in much extent in this kind of interview, people just need to get your book uh, to be able to digest all of it. But we try to anticipate questions that they would ask as they read the book. If they had your ear and wanted to know more that they might ask you, including some things that they might have as criticisms. And uh, I, I was going to play devil's advocate here for just a minute, if you don't don't mind. Um, you know, I'm an engineer in background. I have some familiarity with mathematics, a little training in statistics. And I've only had just a cursory exposure to your methodology right now. But there were so many cycles that you mentioned in your book. Uh, I didn't even know there was as many as 30 or 40. But with these repeated numbers and the and the means by which they can repeat, including even using exponential repeats uh, as well as regular numbers, I would be somewhat surprised with that many different simultaneous cycles if few, if any, years in history are left out of these uh, these different panoply of different variations that you could have once you keep finding all the different years that are clicked off to fit on some kind of cycle. And, and, of course, even in a given year, there are so many significant events every year in history. It seems like one would be hard-pressed not to find a significant event that occurs on one of these events, even on one particular issue uh, every year, that there's been something that would help support the ability to find a correlation, uh, particularly when you put a tolerance range of you know a few years, give or take, in your model. Even though, I, granted, it'd be a little harder in earlier history because we just simply have less documentation of, of events that happen from one year to the next. Is it possible, and I'm sure you've done a lot of self-retrospection yourself on, on this, is it possible that these event-rich conditions uh, that we see in history could cause one to inadvertently see selective patterns of some perceived significance? Uh, you know, some people have accused even the, the Bible Code people of doing that, of doing backward divining because they just keep running millions and millions of variations. If they find one or two, they, they, they think it's something significant. Is there any, because of that, because of so many cycles and so many years impacted, that it, it could just be coincidental? You know, there, there are a couple of things that would make that highly unlikely, and I'll just give a couple of them. First of all, there is the, you would have to initiate a movement in history on that 70-year cycle every 500-year period. You would have to then move this significant... We're not talking about something small. We're talking about something significant. Then you would have to move it in a new direction at the 280-year mark in history. And that would then have to culminate at the 490 and the 500-year mark in history. It would have to do that four times in a row on the exact same dates, just separated by 500 years. If that's, that's evidence of design. I mean, for that to happen, if it's coincidental, then we need to redefine coincidence as as something that occurs in a very systematic fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. Second thing is that this is something that helped make me a very much a believer in this, the existence of this template. For example, I've noticed that um, two people who I didn't even know of in history, King Canute and King Olaf, um, one is the king of Denmark and England, the other is the king of Norway, and they both were instrumental in the conversion of their people. But they, they, they have a fight, they have a war in 1028, so it's near that new direction time of 1026, a thousand years after 26 AD. And that, that war continues and culminates in 1030 in a final battle where King Olaf is killed, 
And that's, of course, a thousand years after 30 AD. So I thought, okay, well, this points to some, some initiation of this process around the year 994. And so I looked back in history to see what it was. And both men were born in 994 AD. And at that point, I went, oh, my, because now the template was guiding me in my research of mm-hmm. history. And so I thought, let me try this again. Okay, so I thought, okay, now, we have Columbus. He sailed to find this passage to the, to the east by sailing west. What was the, this happened in 1492 or 1500 years from 6 BC, you get 1494. So it was an it was a culminating event. It wasn't an initiating event, it was a culmination of something. So I thought, what happened around the year 1274, the 280 year time period, that, that, that led to Columbus? What was the new direction that, that led this way? Well, again, I found it by, because I was given the, the template provided me with the timing and everything. Marco Polo traveled to China, left in 1271. He arrived sometime between 1271 and 1275. They don't know exactly when. So he arrives in China, and he becomes the first eyewitness of China that writes this, this engaging book, and it became the inspiration of Columbus to sail to the um, to, to the sail west to find this passage to the east. Mm-hmm. So as the template started to guide me in looking at history, I began to think it's like the elemental table. You know, Mendeleev, when he created it, he created blank spaces because he says, we don't know what the element is, but there should be an element right there. Mm-hmm. And it's a template of elements. And mm-hmm. what this template of time is is similar. It says, okay, there should be something there, and then I kept finding it there. Right. It was, in other words, it's, it's passed a litmus test of being a predictive tool, not just backward looking, but it's helped you to uncover new areas by just extrapolating uh, exactly. it further. Okay. Um, another concern that some segment of our audience may have when they read your book and get it, uh, and they're convicted by this by numerous other topics we might cover, not just this one, but sure. um, what would you say to those who who might say that this methodology too closely resembles numerology or other means of divination? Uh, particularly, in, you know, they'll look at, at quotations you have in there like, uh, you know, four is the number of new directions and transformative changes. They might say, how did he get that particular, uh, you know, uh, correlation there? Uh, what would you say to those who feel like this correlation to numerology or divination uh, would be too close for their comfort to be within biblically justifiable practices. I'm glad you asked that. Um, first, I don't know that numerology and divination are the same thing, but the Bible clearly believes that the number seven is associated with perfection and completion, as is the number ten. Martin Lloyd-Jones, are you familiar with him? Mm-hmm. The yeah. yeah. Conservative evangelical, brilliant writer, love to read his stuff. He, I got that quotation, I quoted him directly in the book, that 7 and 10 are numbers of perfection and completion. So this is not something that's off the wall. It's something that's pretty much well accepted by conservative evangelical scholars. What I just did was I said, okay, here's the number 4, and I added that to the list and based what I thought it meant based on how it worked in the Bible. So I, I didn't try anything else there. Another okay. thing is, as far as the time cycles pointing to future events, it's similar to this. Doesn't the prophet Daniel detail a 490-year time cycle based on 77 and tie it to the culmination of future events? 
and that's all the template is trying to do. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't believe for the for the remotest second that I am in Daniel's league because I can tell you I'm not even close. But if this model of time is true, as I believe it is, then it is good. And if it is true and good, then it comes from God. It doesn't come from me. It's mm-hmm. to his glory. Um, that would help explain perhaps why he chose me, if he did indeed choose me for this work. It's He tends to choose the run of the litter, the, the, the weaker ones, the more pathetic person to, to deliver this message because he understands that that person will know in his heart of hearts that he didn't have the wherewithal to come up with this. So that's kind of how I look at this. Um, it's, it's a template that's found in the Bible, and it was revealed to me slowly over time no voice was spoke speaking to me but i just was i was pushed to to complete this i was mm-hmm. i was working on this at 3 in the morning and 4 in the morning before i'd go to work and i don't know why i i did or had the energy for it but i just had to find this out mhm mhm now i'm assuming your publicist didn't let you use the word like uh what, what, how did you just describe yourself? Uh, run of the litter. And yeah, what was the other yeah. word you used? Pathetic. Uh, pathetic. Yeah, they wouldn't let you put that on the inside jacket cover, I guess, in your description. No, no, but you know, God chooses those sorts to do His <laughs> nah, work. Sure. Hey, how do you think Future Quake stayed on yeah. the air for have six you, years? Have you ever heard of uh, the show called? Yeah, yeah exactly. pa- pathe- pathetic quake would probably be a very apt term for it here. But uh, I, I understand what you're saying on that. I just wanted to make sure you had an opportunity to address that for our listeners. I appreciate it. Uh, to, to, to express how you look at things. And, and, and you're giving this all over for Jesus' glory and not your own, correct? That's Well, uh, I, absolutely. I think that that's the, the fundamental thing that this template does, as I said before, is it shows how history... Uh, Jesus did not conform to history, history conformed to his life. Mm-hmm. And it, it extends from his life, it points to his life, It he's at the center of time, well, and his master of time. We just have a last few questions, if you can hang with us here sure. for just a little bit. Uh, you, you talk about, toward the end of your book, that you, you feel like, it, it, in my understanding, is that the U.S. will be a safe harbor for Christians when the Antichrist reigns. Uh, and the reason why we may raise our eyebrows is because we've been following a lot of activities going on in the United States where just in the last year, you know, the government has released DHS reports that those of us who take the Bible literally or pro-life or these other kind of issues are considered right-wing extremists and a danger to the public. And, and we see this attitude growing in our own country. We're, we're feeling a lot of hostility you know, there, there's 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 sort of this dominionist movement, you know, of trying to establish Christendom, it, but then there's also this backlash that's going, uh, much like the Enlightenment people do, where they see that we're a risk that we're trying to take over everybody, and and even there's reports in the military, and uh, air you know Air War College and others worried about this and about Bible believing Christians. So with this going on, how do you how do you rationalize it being in, a, in an oasis or a or a preserve for us? when, in fact, it seems like these war clouds are, are looming internally in our country? Well, you know, as you mentioned before, that um, there are tipping points, and God can turn history around on a dime. Um, and during the Second Great Awakening, which was one of those events of new directions, that is, it, it will culminate in this time period, we will see outpourings of God's Spirit on the United States, not because the United States is deserving, but because God is gracious and he has plans for this country, I believe. One of them is to be a 
a um, safe haven for not just Christians, but for whoever's in this, this hemisphere. And let me deal with the first objection to that, which would be, doesn't the Bible state that the whole world will follow the beast, and mm-hmm. it does in Revelation 13.3, and that he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation? It states that in Revelation 13.7. So how can there be any country that is not controlled by the beast? Well, first of all, I'd say that this language is is typical of apocalyptic literature. It's called it's hyperbolic language. For example, Daniel said the Babylonian Empire would rule over every person and animal. That's Daniel, verse, chapter 2, verse 38. That never happened. He also said Greece would rule over the whole earth. That's Daniel, mm-hmm. chapter 2, verse 39, the very next verse. That never happened either. Um, is the Bible wrong? The, no, the Bible's not wrong. It's simply using hyperbolic language to make the expression that they would rule over a kingdom of unrivaled extent. So when it comes to Rome, I don't think that we should expect to see it uh, conquer the entire world, even though the Bible seems to clearly state this. So why will the United States survive and remain free? One of the reasons why is because it's it's a new direction for this 500-year period. It was it was conceived in around 1774, and it was a, a weak expression. Well, these weak expressions in that new direction phase take a couple hundred years, and then they grow to dominance. So we have, um, even though we seem like we're stumbling around right now, that we are lapsing into senility and weakness, I, I think that the era of America's greatness is still before it. Hmm. Well, why would God regard America more highly for that blessing more than a bunch of other nations around the world? You know, certainly not because of anything America's done to deserve it, but I think that you can see that there is a, um, that because he instituted this, this, a government that where church and state were separated so that there became the possibility for religious toleration here in the states, that could be one reason for it. Mm-hmm. But another reason why I think he's, he's, he's chosen or he's indicated he's chosen us is the way that these great awakenings, these spiritual outpourings occur on the United States. I mean, we desperately need them, and he knows that, and he's provided those for us. And I think that the more powerful ones in the seventh cycle of culmination, which we're now in, still await us. Well, you know, I hope you're right. Uh, I, I hope because it would be much more convenient for me geographically because I was already planning to relocate to the Faroe Islands. and <laughs> It would be a lot easier for me to stay here. Uh, I, I don't know why I would warrant any special merit to Jesus over a, a Christian in these other countries. Oh, it has uh, nothing to do with us. It. it has yeah. to do – I mean, why, for example, um, are do, do some nations have great prosperity, military – it's just – it's God's – God lifts up certain nations and, and – pushes down others. It's it's not because of us. It's because of God's plan. Well, now I see that Calvinism coming through there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You you made a number of predictions uh, in in 2010 in your book, uh, which, again, I respect that because that means you stand behind your methodology enough and believe in Mm -hmm. it. Uh, rather than wimping out on that. I think that was really uh, the coolest part of the book. Like, you weren't afraid to come forward and say, this is not what I think is going to happen. You're right. Most right. people tend to stop. It means it was it was worth reading. Yeah. And and you, you claim this to be a significant year on a bunch of different levels. And, and I, I'm not, I don't know quite when you finish your manuscript. I, I assume it's been some time ago. 
Uh, but there was a number of events that, from what I gather, have not occurred yet. And, of course, we're, at the time we're recording this, we're in the middle of November now, and with just a few weeks left in the year. Are you concerned that many of them will go unfulfilled, and does that have any impact on the way you perceive your model? No, I'm not concerned that they'll be unfulfilled by in 2010 because the model has that one- to two-year window typically where these things occurred. So, for example, um, Columbus sailing in 1492, it wasn't exactly 1494, but it was within that two-year period. So I would think that the predictions that I've made, and, and one thing I want to make clear to the audience is that um, no one knows the future these are I am interpreting a pattern of time much like a meteorologist interprets a pattern of weather and predicts the next day's weather. So you're not scrying with a crystal ball then. Exactly right. Okay. Well, um, I want to make sure that was clear then. <laughs> but if it doesn't happen within 2010, 2011, 2012, I will be surprised. Yeah. Okay. All but, right. Well, you've got something explicit that we can have your book and immediately look. And uh, it, you're not doing like a Nostradamus on us where you're saying something so vague that it could be or not be, you know. No, one thing is actually coming true, it looks like. I put in the thing in the chapter 2010 about Afghanistan. I said, based on the current things, it appears that the United States will be forced or will either leave or be forced to leave Afghanistan by the year 2014, if not sooner. That appears to be coming true now. I mm -hmm. keep hearing 2014 as being the date that they're kicking about us for us leaving. It would be very, very interesting if it works out that way. Um, what about the future quake show? Anything that you saw in the code about, like, our prosperity? or We, we were hoping maybe we, we're still trying to get the jet, like some of the big ministries, yeah. and we're not quite there We're never going to use it for, we'll only use it for ministry purposes, <laughs> like <laughs> flying it to Aspen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it basically said that once future quake adopts that prosperity gospel, that, you know, okay. all, everything is solved then for you. Sweet. Well, knew that, that was the key. That's really up to our Futurian listeners. They need to immediately right now write a check. Yeah. yeah, your $58 seed will... And look at it this way. You'll just be testing his theory. That's really... It's a scientific <laughs> experiment. And I'm, I'm thinking the more money they send, the better the correlation will be yeah. uh, on that. Hey, why do you think God would feel the need to set up a pattern like this in the big picture? You know, I, I just think that um, our God is a God of order. And when we see history, we see chaos. It's just nothing seems to make sense. It's, these things happen without rhyme or reason. When actually, it's it's very structured. When we look at it from the from the perspective of this template, um, it, it's unfolding in a very orderly way. Uh, but the most important point is, he God has a desire to honor the Son. Um, and the son has a desire to honor the father. But one of the things that I think that the father's plan does is it exalts the son. It puts him at the center of time. And it shows how all of time extends from him and mm -hmm. is shaped by him. So I think that that's the reason for the patterns personally. Hmm. Well, you know, there's another thing that I draw from this. If, if this methodology is valid or some variation of it, the other message I get is that God is in control. Absolutely. Uh, and you mentioned mm -hmm. several verses that said that, you know, quoted at the appointed time this happened or at the appointed that time that happened. That basically says the same thing. God already has it foreordained when these certain events will occur at certain times. And we should take comfort in that, uh, that if he has that much control over world events, when he says that he will deliver our souls from hell, we could take a lot of comfort that he's going to be able to do that or that he's going to accomplish other things in our life as well, too. 
I also think that it's it's an indicator that these are <clears throat> the last days, yeah. and that it's it's another call for repentance. That right. in these last days, people need to turn to the Lord, believe in Him, and become a part of His kingdom, because as prophecy clearly states, His kingdom wins. Right, mm-hmm. that's right. And you know, um, the other thing that a lot of times we forget, because we cover one harrowing topic after another on Future Quake over the years, is that God is fully in charge, and he has Satan on a leash. Even though Satan sees himself as openly rebelling, we see examples in Scripture where God confines him to what he does, and in fact, in some cases, he even allows the work of Satan to somehow, like Jesus, like the Bible says, all things work together for good. I think of the life of of, uh, Job where Job's life actually had something positive and redemptive happen in his life, where it was better than before Satan was allowed or permitted to do his work in his life. Uh, we, we read cases where, um, you know, even Paul uh, turned certain people over to Satan that they would learn to humble them and their humility, or this this and that. But, but the good news is, is that although rebellion is there and he can create terrible havoc, in the big picture of things, God has got everything under control, and there is no reason for us to be alarmed or fearful. What we do need to be concerned about is our own personal lives and the things that we can control and can choose to neglect, whether we choose to remain faithful to Christ or whether we neglect the calling that we have. But these are things that we have decisions on. We maybe can't affect everything in the world, but God's got a good handle on that. Uh, We may have a role in world issues. We can't wash our hands of, of our role to make the world a better place. But but he's but we're not to worry about it. But we are to be concerned, like Jesus has said. You know, he says sufficient today is the evil thereof. Exactly. I think that um, as as Luther said, the devil is God's devil. He God <laughs> is in control. He's sovereign over all the affairs of human history, or else it could not possibly conform to a pattern. Right. Right. Um, uh, as we close here, I've, I've got to ask: Is there anything else beyond what's in your book? that we need to keep an eye on, or something that you plan to do for your next step? Um, no, right now I'm just in the process of, uh, of publicizing, getting the word out that this that this book is available, that there's this different idea on time out there, and I'm um, trying to see what happens from that as I continue to slog my way through the markets. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I predict in uh, 28 years you'll take a new direction. With this. And That's it will good. probably go for like 21 years and then you'll culminate your research in this area. So that's just my view of things. Uh, please tell our, tell our listeners again how they can get your book, The Template of Time, and follow your research further. Okay, you can find it at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. And God willing, one day you'll be able to find it in your stores, but not yet. So I'd go there. I'd also say check out my website, thetemplateoftime.com. You'll find a lot of illustrations to help you understand how the template works. And my blog, which is on the, is at the website, it deals with current events, forecasts, and um, and even shows looks back at the past and shows some of the um, some of the different things that I worked out, but I couldn't fit into the book because there are just too many too many things that I uncovered that it, it couldn't all fit. And for our listeners, you get this book, you get an added bonus. You will actually learn a whole lot of history that you didn't learn in school and and, and most likely not learn in church either. 
and it will t- change your view of a lot of things. And, and the other thing, too, is it will show people in the book uh, who they should marry, uh, when they should invest in the stock market. Mm. Uh, that's all in there, too, right? Oh, they're yeah, lucky numbers. Exactly. No. <laughs> no, in fact, it's, um, I think that the overarching message is the one that you focused on, which yeah. is it's one of hope. It's right. one of, of confidence. Right. Hey, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate you joining us. And uh, this took tremendous dedication for you to put this work together. It blessed me on several different levels. And uh, and I recommend our listeners take a look at it as well, too. And we'd sure like to have you back with uh, some additional commentary. Uh, as further events happen, it might even help you refine your model. I'm, uh, coming from the scientific community, I've never had a circumstance where I didn't have a model that needed refining. You and, bet. And uh, I think as you get more data, now that you sort of got a general idea on the structure of what God's up to, more data I think will make this even more interesting to look at. So we thank you so much for joining us here on Future Quake. Thank you. It's my pleasure. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom into the new format, Bionic. Mm-hmm. Um, we are now transitioning over. This is sort of a hybrid show mm-hmm. uh, that gets us back into our planned Cyborg, internet, our internet format. Nephilim. A little bit longer than what we'll be doing in the like future. Sons of a knock. But I know our internet listeners appreciate the fact that they could hear an interview uninterrupted without us chiming in. Blah blah blah. Yeah. yeah. Now they just that. have to hear it now, and they can turn this off earlier. Yeah. Do you have any comments on uh, Brother Tom and what he shared with us about several. his thoughts? Or uh, yeah. several. One of which, as I had remarked earlier, was I appreciated the fact that he did not. He seemed perfectly okay with tough questions especially at the end you see, kind of said i'm going to play devil's advocate and he was mm-hmm. like okay let's let's roll yeah I, I appreciated that there are a lot of people who don't who are uncomfortable with that level of mm-hmm. scrutiny of their theory i would say probably me included in some cases mm-hmm. sure i get defensive yep um the other thing is that i just really found him to be a genuine good guy you mm-hmm. know uh based on our our time in the interview mm-hmm. uh and the third thing would be that um um I don't know if I I don't know if I go with all of his conclusions, but I think there might be some validity to what, some mm-hmm. of what he's uncovered. Well, and for our listeners, uh, when you get the book, you get sort of two different things. You get uh, a methodology that you can evaluate, make your own decisions mm-hmm. about the repetition. But you get a history lesson. I warn you that you're going to have to be patient, and it, well, if you're like me and you're slow-witted, you'll have to look at it a few times for it to start to make sense. But the other part is, in the process of him explaining the methodology and showing examples. He gives a concise lesson, as I said in the show, of, of world history, of things that we don't normally hear about. And some of his perspectives were very refreshing. He also was careful to give caveats and things he said that, you know, I don't necessarily go this way or believe this, but I think it's significant. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was sort of refreshing, too. Yeah. And certainly he's welcome to come back at any time. I uh, would certainly love to have him back on the show and wish him well mm-hmm. in his book. Um and again, you you mentioned again this is a new format here. Um, we're now going to an internet only mm-hmm. uh, atmosphere. Um, if if those of you out there feel like it might be the Lord's will for us to get back on regular radio, this is our first time not on regular radio in six years we've been on the air. Mm-hmm. Um, pray that the old WNO or some other folk would open their eyes. Yeah. Uh, two and a half years ago, it looked like Future Quake was dead. It looked like it was over. Mm-hmm. We left the other radio station, and a miracle happened. And why they accepted us on WNO, I'll never know. 
In fact, I need Large to call them before the they're gone and something. find out yeah. why why they had us on the show because it was a anomaly to be on that important a Christian talk station it was like reaching the audience had to we do have. Radio, but they had had a large blow to the head. That's right. <laughs> and we have such a large number of new listeners that first met us, mm-hmm. just spinning the dial and happened to bump into us mm-hmm. uh, on the commute. And I want to just thank the you know so much if you're out there and hearing. Uh, but listeners. Uh, drop them an email. Now, at this time right now is prior to the end date when this is recorded, and there is no way that I can find on how to contact the new management. Yeah. There's nothing online to find to contact them. I'm assuming when they take over now that um, there'll be some means. But our listeners, if you if you send all sorts of stuff, we may have a presence. One thing that's nice on local radios, you probably get some more prestigious guests from time to time. Mm-hmm. But um, regardless, we feel like we still have a mission and we're going to use this opportunity right now to to make it a little bit more user-friendly for you and I to do some projects, like we mentioned earlier. Yep. And so I appreciate everybody's prayers. Thanks, everybody, for your incredibly encouraging emails that you sent. Um, they just did my heart really good during this time of uh, transition and trial. Mm-hmm. Um, you all have a real ministry to us here at Future Quake with what you say, and some of them came from halfway around the world. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate it so much, and our commitment is stay stay here. Uh, keep doing what we're doing. In some ways, we'll be a little bit more liberated in what we do. Mm-hmm. And we will certainly take full advantage because we're, we've got crazy days coming up. And I want to make two quick announcements before we go uh, for next week. By the way, we've got some interesting guests coming up. Next week, we're going to do an interview, too, before we get into our, our news things. And it's going to be a memorable Future Quake. But uh, two things. One of our favorite guests here at Future Quake, Robert Hyde, mm-hmm. um, has, after much prodding from us, has started his own blog. Sycamore 3. Sycamore3.blogspot.com. Mm-hmm. It is definitely worth a read. Tom uh, Bionic hasn't seen it, but Lom Ryonic did. Lom, Lom did, okay. Yeah. Uh, he comments uh, wonderfully about Future Quake, compliments as well on his experience on Future Quake. Mm-hmm. Of course, he's known me for over 30 years. You, so. you two are all sort of related in an oblique way. Well, in a very distant way, yes. Yeah. But um, uh, we really highly recommend that. That is a mm-hmm. place for you... To, if you like Future Quake, you'll you'll like that, and it'll be even more challenging and interesting there at sycamore3.blogspot.com. Also, I want to mention that uh, our good friend Mark Breton, uh, who's been on our show and know well, uh, he wanted to mention that he was recently on the Iron Show. Yep. And, uh, of course, no one's ever the same after coming off yeah, the Iron like Show. a large blow to the head. It's sort of like the Jimi Hendrix experience. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he wanted to be sure to tell the Futurians, he said, about yeah. Mark Breton on Iron Show. So go on. If you've not experienced the Iron Show, it's worth, uh, and if, I assume his archives still have with you and I in our respective shows I on there. So. Uh, I've been on there twice. Well, aren't we special? Neener, neener, neener. Yeah, I guess you are special. Well, I think it's time for us to go. Any other comments you have? Uh, only that Mark Breton had one of my favorite comments on the Future Quake show. Yeah. You asked him, he said, what do you foresee as the biggest danger to Christianity? And he said, without hesitation, fake Christians. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow. Yeah. Don't hold back, Mark. He didn't mention any kind of foreigners or any no. other kind of like people, other enemies. People wearing, External. You know, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, you're right. And that's a good theme for our show. And again, I want to conclude by thanking uh, Mr. Payne. Mr. Payne, your show will be uh, broadcast, at least the majority of it, on WNO. And, in fact, you'll go down in the legacy of, of Future Quake. It'll be in our final show on there. Mm-hmm. And it'll live on in perpetuity here in futurequake.com archive. And believe me, uh, it will be listened to time and time and time and time again by our, what our listeners tell us. I wonder what kind of fractal would be like him being our last show mm-hmm. on... Uh, it's too complicated for him we, to do we might, the theory. We might send him some numbers and see if he can come up with something. Yeah. See, I'm, Is that a culmination or a new direction? He'd probably warn all the listeners to stay away from us. Is it a 3-2 reversal? I don't know. we got to go. Uh, we've been doing free form here today. Appreciate you all putting up with us. And uh, come back for next week's Future Quake. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Ciao. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake.